We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. And welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. But this week, you can call me Naughty Lola. Only if you sing it. <laughs> I don't know the words. I don't know that song at all. <laughs> I mean, it's a great little number, actually. It was stuck in my head all day. Oh, was it? Oh, that's awesome. Now I know what uh, piano is in Dutch. What is the word? Pianola. Oh, okay. You learned a lot. You learned a lot. And that's what's important about this podcast. I learned so much, you know, about Diamonds Are Forever. That's the movie that taught me the most of any movie we've tackled. That and Condor Man. But it's good to know that you're also learning things. Explains a lot about you, Cam. It does. It does. But uh, let's, let's, let's give the people what they want. What are we talking about this week? We are talking about the 2006 Paul Verhoeven film, Black Book. Now, maybe before we look at the film a little bit, the director himself, like, I see he did Robocop. Yeah. And Total Recall, are they the ones, mm-hmm. that I, his big Hollywood films? He has the trifecta that came out, and it was in a row. It was Robocop, Total Recall, and Basic Instinct which were all huge movies. And then he kind of got in some trouble, you know, with just in audiences. Um, He did Showgirls, which he has insisted to this day was exactly what he wanted it to be. And people have had weird reappraisals of that movie. There's a documentary called You Don't Know Me that looks at it from the point of view of his work and how it's actually in many ways a comedy and people just don't really grasp it. So... People are mixed, but it's definitely become a cult classic. He also did Starship Troopers after Showgirls, Ooh. a movie I absolutely love. And, One of my uh, favorite sci-fi, so I didn't know that was him. Yeah, and so that was a movie that was something that was pitched as a big blockbuster, and audiences hated it. They didn't realize it was a satire of fascism. Really? They didn't? No. People didn't go was, to see Starship Troopers? Though they went initially, and then the like, just the um, audiences stopped fast after the first couple days i, I remember it just went now. off a cliff yeah, yeah me too to be fair i didn't really get the satire until i was a bit older right i was a few years older than you and i remember being you still quite are. taken aback by it. that's true that's true I, we have not evened out yet but Mm-mm. um i remember it being kind of for me i think i was like 16 or 17 when i saw it and being sort of one of those earlier movies for me where it was like oh like this director is trying to say something in like a blockbuster and that's really interesting to me my mum walked in on me watching Showgirls once. Oh my, oh my. Bad scene choice too. <laughs> so the whole movie? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's enough being funny, let's be serious. Mm-hmm, yes. Black Book. For those who haven't seen it, here is your letterbox.com synopsis. Black Book. To fight the enemy, she must become one of them. 
in the Nazi-occupied Netherlands during World War II, a Jewish singer infiltrates the regional Gestapo headquarters for the Dutch resistance. Yeah, I mean, it's a very complex movie in a lot of ways, but I think if I were to pitch it to a room of studio heads, that's how I'd do it. Yeah, that's that's the elevator line, isn't it? Really, that's uh, that's how you yeah. would sell it. Although I imagine it'd be a tough sell for a lot of people. Also, the fact that it's in Dutch. Sure. Yeah. Um. Well, we can talk about more about that when we talk about you know box office and grosses and what have you. Sure. Well, you know, I'd never seen this film, Shock Horror. Had you? Yes, I had. It was one that definitely made some noise. Uh, I think it was released in 2006 in the Netherlands. But in uh, in terms of North American release, it showed up early in 2007. And um, I saw it on video very quickly after it hit video. And I was really bowled over by it at the time. I was really quite taken aback by what a different take on a World War II movie it was. And just the style of Verhoeven in a movie like this. And the lead performance, which we're going to talk about from Carice Van Houten, just like blew me away. And I was convinced... I was seeing what was going to be one of the big stars and actresses of her time. And um, I think we failed her, quite frankly. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that. I think she gets a, a good showing in, in TV. I mean, oh, yeah. for those who don't know the name, she goes on to play Melisandre in Game of Thrones, one of the pivotal characters in the whole show, from basically the beginning till the end. And she you know, gets to act her pants off most of the way through that film so she gets a good thing but yeah i know what you mean though she hasn't had like a a top hollywood film particularly no like i remember seeing the movie uh valkyrie with tom cruise and like i think she plays his wife or something like that and you're just like oh come on like this woman is the star like she should be leading movies and she was also in that movie repo men with jude law and you're just like come on she deserves better quality material than this I've been reading a little bit about her today. She actually speaks four languages. I have never felt more dumb in my life. I barely speak one. <laughs> Quite right. But um, usually I have some sort of silly pun segue, but I mean, this is our first foreign language film, so I kind of want to get into how it was made. So can you enlighten us, Cam? I can. So we've talked about Paul Verhoeven, who very provocative director and i think we'll talk about a lot of the choices he makes in this movie but um he had started off his career at the end of the 50s and really going into the 60s in his hometown of the netherlands um and doing you know documentaries for the navy he was a member of the royal um netherlands navy for a while as well as just doing shorts and then eventually feature films and he would continue on making movies there for basically um 25 years before he would seg into North American filmmaking. But when he was over there, he was doing some pretty fantastic movies like Soldier of Orange and um, Turkish Delight, movies that have since been recognized as very you know important and profound works that took a little bit of time to make it across the pond. But once he came over here, he made a movie in 1985 called Flesh and Blood, a fantasy epic. I haven't seen it. Have you seen Flesh and Blood? Only when I was watching Showgirls. Bingo. <laughs> you could not have a better response than that. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> um, and then he rolled right into RoboCop. So like, that's when I became ultra familiar with him, was being this guy who was making these visionary science fiction films between RoboCop and Total Recall. And you see throughout his work, he has a very strong 
um, sense of ultraviolence and sexuality. Those are the two things he really likes to kind of prod the audience with in a way that felt very different than what other filmmakers were doing who were playing things maybe a little more conservative in some ways. He tends to like to confront the audience with images and concepts. But we've talked about movies like, you know, Showgirls and Starship Troopers. But in 2000, he did the movie Hollow Man, which was the Invisible Man uh, kind of quasi-remake with Kevin Bacon. And it was just kind of a bad movie and a bomb. So he, instead, you know, of continuing on the Hollywood uh, road, went back um, to the Netherlands and worked on the script for Black Book with writer Gerard Soteman. Before you continue, you said Hollow Man came out in 2000. Yes. Wasn't that the same year that League of Extraordinary Gentlemen came out and also had The Invisible Man? That was the year after, I think, 2001, to the best of my memory. Maybe maybe 2003, maybe? Wow. Invisible Man's getting a lot of uh, screen time these days. There's a lot of Invisible Man movies out there. A lot. So, you know, Invisible Man is... There might just be a lot of Invisible Men. That's right. They're everywhere, Scott. They're surrounding me right now. Help! Help! (laughs) (laughs) But please continue. Sorry for disrupting you. I think the thing with Invisible Man is it's a um, property where the rights are probably just... They're probably public domain now. Right, okay. Because it's been out for so long. So you can look out for our Nosferatu film coming out soon. Very soon, very soon. Um, So instead of continuing down the Hollywood road, he went back to the Netherlands and reunited with his um, old writing partner, Gerard Soteman, who had co-written movies like um, Turkish Delight, Soldier of Orange, as well as Flesh and Blood. And they had been working on the script for Black Book for 15 years. And it had started when they were writing Soldier of Orange, and they just came across a lot of material that they thought would be interesting to put into a World War II movie, but it didn't fit Soldier of Orange, which was more of a black and white story of Nazi occupation of the Netherlands and how um, Paul Verhoeven was a young child when this was happening. So he had a lot of vivid memories of the time that he wanted to get out in that film, but they've always stuck with him. And it's why he keeps revisiting fascism over the course of his career. He's just always been really interested in exploring it and trying to understand it. Well, I mean, when you're even at a young age, you're, you're touched by that part of history it's going to leave a mark. It's it's not something you easily forget. Right, yeah. And so he worked on this script, you know, picked it up in 2000, and he said it wasn't until 2001 that they cracked it, where they switched the protagonist from a male to a female, and then sort of the concept of the movie unfolded for what they wanted it to be. Okay. I mean, 25-year gestation period is a, probably not the longest time for a script, I imagine, but... It's interesting because I, I know a lot of we've had a lot of writers on the show, and I always feel like their opinion would be if you've been writing on something so long and people haven't picked it up or you haven't cracked it, you just move on. Yeah. So it's interesting they stuck with this idea. We'll, we'll get into whether it worked or not, but yeah, interesting. Yeah, and they loosely based the story of the film on uh, Esme Van Egan, who was a Dutch resistance fighter during World War Two. And um, someone who was spying on the SD, which was the intelligence agency of the SS, and ultimately fell in love with a German officer and went to live with him, which put her on pretty shaky ground with both the resistance and eventually the Germans who raided the resistance headquarters and found some uh, paperwork that uh, essentially pointed to her as being very untrustworthy. And so 
She was on the run. She went into hiding, but was later arrested and executed in 1944 at the age of 26. So her story is different than what's in Black Book, but that was essentially the kernel of what inspired the arc of this movie. Quite the Matahari. Indeed, indeed. And I believe she was more after her death. There was a lot of kind of folklore built up around her as sort of this, I guess at the time, modern day Matahari figure. Mm. And Matahari gets a shout out in the film as well, but there were no candles. That's true. That's true. Did it uh, blow you away to hear a shout out to a movie we've tackled on Spy Hards, a 1931 film, no less? They even dropped uh, Greta Garbo. And can I say nice pun with uh, blow and candle? Yes, that's right. That's right. You didn't plan that at all, I can tell. I didn't. The sacred candle, I mean, it's always burning in the background, but it doesn't always jump to the forefront of my memory. (laughs) So originally, this movie was supposed to start shooting around 2004, but it was stalled by just financial issues. The movie was financed by four countries, Holland, England, Germany, and Belgium. So it's not really a Netherlands film, and that was something that... um, Verhoeven tackled a lot on the press tour saying, well, he was going home, but this was more of a European film versus a Netherlands film, which is what traditionally he'd been doing in the past. But it was in terms of pitching it to the audiences and in terms of the press tour, it was very much a, this is Paul Verhoeven going back to his roots and essentially trying to revitalize his creative juices after movies like Hollow Man and Showgirls. Which I can imagine a lot of people might roll their eyes at. You know, if you have like a a really big band, like say U2, for instance, probably a bad example now, but let's go with U2. And they say, yeah, we're returning to our Irish roots and we're going to make a Celtic album. Are people going to buy that? Well, they kind of went back to their roots with that album. Was it Songs of Innocence? The one that they put on everyone's iPhones? Do you remember that? Yes, I remember hating that. Yeah, like that. that was them going back to like, these are the songs of our youth that we're trying to replicate and not a great album. <laughs> the, the the Bono flute solo was a bit much for me. A bit much. I did see them on that tour though. It was a pretty good tour. Because they didn't play any songs from that album? I think they played like three or four maybe. So not a lot. It was mostly the hits. Three or four too many, but please continue. Yes. So um, because of the stall in shooting, um, it actually caused a legal issue for Carice Van Houten, who was under contract to a theater company, and they sued the production because she would not be able to do a play that she was under contract to do for the company. And ultimately, the lawsuit, the way it was resolved, was that the Black Book producers had to pay a significant amount to get her into the clear to shoot the movie, so she did not end up doing the play. I'm not going to foreshadow anything, but that was probably a good call. Mm-hmm. And this movie cost $21 million. It domestically, and so (laughs) domestic, what does that even mean when it opens in the Netherlands, right? Strictly Dutch, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So North America, I'll say, it made $4.4 million, international 22.4, for a worldwide total of 26.8. Now, 26.8, you may go, well, that's not that much, and the movie cost 21. It was, at the time, the most commercially successful Dutch film ever. Yes, but that's a a poor barometer for how successful the film was. Well, I mean... Because you can say that, okay, so you can say gross it made 26 million, and therefore it made the most amount of money any Dutch film's ever made, but that's not taking away its budget. Now, it didn't really make any money. 
It can hang its hat on the fact that it's the best Dutch film or the most successful Dutch film ever made. But I don't see any sequels. No, I don't think there was a sequel. But it was seen as pretty big success at the time, sure, especially sure, for sure. Verhoeven, who had been, I think, struggling a bit. It landed at you know in the year box office. And as I said, 2006, it opens in the Netherlands and a few other territories. But 2007 is mostly where it opens up in terms of you know the UK and um you know north america but and whatever else but um i'm going to give the 2006 information for the box office so for 2006 releases it landed number 155 between the painted veil which was an i think edward norton film with naomi watts i think i'm I'm recording behind it right now of course of course and it was one spot above detective conan the private eyes requiem is that the follow-up to conan the barbarian we all wanted (laughs) <laughs> or he becomes a detective. Yeah. I wish. <laughs> I, I'd watch that film. <laughs> I. What is the clue? <laughs> I want to hear that proper like gumshoe style voiceover yeah, from yeah, Arnie. Yeah. <laughs> no, this was an anime film. I looked it up because I did definitely go like, what? What is that? So yeah, it was an anime. Who knows? Maybe it's very popular. I know nothing about anime. And I think we're going to tackle some in the not too far off future of this podcast. So for once, I get to sit here and be like, I know nothing about this. Yeah, to be fair, the, the film we've got coming up is one that's very important to me. And uh, yeah, I'll actually know a ton of it. I might even do the uh, the intro bit yeah, and just maybe. Uh, let you sit back and enjoy. That would be a fun- no. No, oh, I won't do that. No. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> the top three for that year. Number one was Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. Number two was The Da Vinci Code. Number three was Ice Age 2, The Meltdown. What a top three. <laughs> what a what a blemish on cinema history. 2006 was a pretty weak year. And like The Departed won Best Picture that year. Departed's really good movie. Good. Good film. There, yeah. there was good stuff this year. Casino Royale came out this year. Um, Borat was a big phenomenon. But yeah, pretty shaky, like overall. If you could stop wearing that mankini, I'd appreciate it. I can't. I've committed to it. I'm sorry. It's here to it's, stay. It's part of the bit. I get it. I get it. I get it. It's actually, I, I would have thought Casino Royale did better. To I mean. Well, it uh, it did well, but it, the Craig ones would build, right, with each consecutive one where they just kept making more and more. So Casino Royale, it did very, very well in North America. I think it actually beat the Brosnan films in terms of box office, but it did land at number four for the year, and there was a number of spy films this year. So Casino Royale, number four, that is nothing to be embarrassed about at the worldwide box office. Just not quite Ice Age 2, the meltdown numbers. <laughs> but We're all I, about that, that, that little chipmunk with the nut. The thing about a family movie like that is you're selling four tickets mm. as opposed to a casino rally, you're selling one or two, right? That's the difference. It's definitely just one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's, 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 no, uh, there's no couples going to a Bond film. So uh, yeah, number four, Casino Royale. Number eight was Mission Impossible 3. Number 60 was The Good Shepherd, the Matt Damon history of the CIA film directed by Robert De Niro. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested yeah. to dive into that one. Now that we do this podcast, I saw it way, way back. And... It did not connect with me in a big way, I will say, back in 2006. I'm just curious if now, having watched so many more spy movies for this show, if I have a different appreciation for it. Yeah, definitely haven't seen The Good Shepherd, but um, I, I'm always up for more spy films. That's why I do this. That's right. So number 77 was The Lives of Others, another um, international film that I'm looking forward to tackling. I've never seen that one, and it has a lot of praise behind it. Number 162 was Stormbreaker, which was the YA film. Um, 
I think it's called Alex Ryder Stormbreaker in North America, maybe. Oh, yeah, I do recognize that. Yeah. Is Alex Ryder a spy, then? He, he is indeed, yes. Oh, wow. I That's should probably right. know that. You probably should. We'll find out when we do uh, that film later down the road. Right after Boss Baby 3. <laughs> and number 166, OSS 117, Cairo, Nest of Spies, which we did with the uh, Spy Fi guys over on their show. And it's actually a really good film, so I'm looking forward to uh, tackling those. And another foreign language film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just a couple of final notes. This was nominated at the BAFTAs for Best Film, Not in English Language. And um, it led to a Paul Verhoeven resurgence. And, uh, you know, in the last handful of years, he's put out movies like Elle and Benedetta, which have been international productions, but have gotten a lot of praise and a lot of attention. And I believe the uh, lead actress of Elle, Isabelle Hubert, um, got a Best Actress nomination at the Oscars. So um, Verhoeven, still kicking around and uh, not a young man, born in 1938, I believe. So does that mean he's exclusively making, let's call them European films now? Sure. Okay. I wonder if he'll ever come back to Hollywood then. At this point, I don't know. Like, the, I guess the question is, and this does tie into the larger conversation of Verhoeven and Black Book, is, is there anything in Hollywood for him anymore? If he is able to make these movies, which are kind of crazy, both, you know, L is like a rape revenge film and Benedetta is a movie set in a nunnery that's very sexual. Is that the sort of storytelling he's able to even do in North America now? Maybe he's better off making international films. And I mean, to be fair, if you take the foreign language part of this film out from a visual standpoint, it looks like a Hollywood film. Yeah. I mean, his visual eye is unbelievable. Well, Cam, let's stick the proverbial foot in the toilet and wash our feet and talk all about Black Book. <laughs> Trust me, I worked hard for these puns this week. I worked really hard for I these I was going to but... say, yeah, like, people need to appreciate, Scott puts a lot of work into these segs, and this movie gives you very little. <laughs> I don't speak Dutch. That's the main issue I have. Uh, and so I have the English translation to work from, and I, I imagine a lot of the jokes are lost. Yeah, yeah. Well, that yeah, true. Also, not a comedic film. Mm-hmm. No, no, it's not. Well, I'll ask you, Cam. You, know, you saw this before, um, but you're watching it again in 2022. What do you think of Black Book? I continue to be quite wowed by this movie. I think it's a very interesting take on a World War II film. I think Paul Verhoeven is someone who is so visceral in his filmmaking and has so much style. And he is, you know, I may call myself Cam the Provocateur, but Paul Verhoeven is the true provocateur when it comes to filmmaking, where I'd go like, he is making us uncomfortable. He's making us question things. And I think a lot of people will watch a movie like Black Book and not know how to process it. And the fact that so much of his filmmaking, you know, he talks about whether it's Soldier of Orange, which he said was more of a black and white film. I haven't seen it. I need to check it out. But um, he said it was more of a black and white version of World War II. You know, the Nazis were bad. The people of the Netherlands were good. And he said that this movie was a corrective to that. And that is something that's really interesting about this movie is that all of the characters occupy very gray territory and there's no easy answers in it. There's no clear cut heroes, really. And um, it's a case where I think a lot of people in 2022 are not going to want to watch this movie. They are not going to want to see an SS, you know, Gestapo head who is portrayed in a sympathetic light. And that's totally fair. But it's fascinating to me to see a filmmaker like Verhoeven try to process that 
and build a dramatic story around it that's visceral, that's exciting, that's dramatically impactful, and that features just an unbelievable lead performance. And does the movie have a bit of a Return of the Kings issue with endings? Yeah, it definitely feels like it gets a little messy in the back half. I'm going to put my finger up there. What? And just ask a question. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. Could you please expand on what a Kings of Films, a Kings of something ending is? Return of the King? Um, sure. Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah. Where? Oh, the Return of the King. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Where Return of the King had like 17 different endings, and that's what people always uh, ridicule it with. Ah. Uh, right? right. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get your problem. Yeah, yeah, and that's something people have said about the Batman as well. You know, the recent three-hour Batman film, and I think Black Book also gets a uh, a bit luxurious and a bit maybe convoluted with its storytelling by the end, but it's also to me that much more interesting because of how it ties into the theme of just the messiness of war and the fact that like it's not clear cut and so i think it's a very challenging film i think it's a movie that is um often going to turn people off away from the the screen and be like i don't want to watch this and it's one that often makes you question what was paul verhoeven going for in a moment like this but that just to me makes it all the more fascinating to talk about and watch yeah, I, I mean, I think from my side of things, I think it's, I, I'll preface, it's not the sort of film I would choose to watch. It, for me, it's got a lot of barriers. It's in a foreign language, which I notoriously struggle with. I, because yeah, you have to genuinely pay attention to the subtitles. And then if you're trying to also watch you know, things like the, how the shots are put together, the cinematography, the acting... Sometimes you can lose the magic of a scene because you're too busy looking at the words on the bottom. And I'm I'm not the smartest man, so <laughs> I am really paying attention to those words at the bottom of the screen. So when I saw that at the beginning of the film, I got a bit worried. Plus two and a half hours, right? <laughs> yeah, two and a half hours of that. I mean, I, I mean, I recently really enjoyed watching Parasite a couple of years ago, and that really helped change my opinion on foreign language films. But it, I still have a hesitance going in and also i got the idea quite early on that tonally this film is not it's not an upbeat thing but nor should it necessarily be an upbeat story it's about the persecution of the jewish people in world war Two and them fighting back in the netherlands it's it's not going to be a laugh a minute and so i had to really sort of stop and collect my thoughts and and try and reframe the film a little bit and, and change my expectations once i did that i got into the film I think it. I think it's visually a very stunning film. I was surprised because I've seen a lot of European films from what doing this podcast. I think of like The Takens, for instance. It's all a European film, at least the first two. Um, this looks a ton better than they do. Uh, you can tell it's got that Hollywood sheen to it. I think that's that's Verhoeven's work there. But I was drawn in and kept interested for the entire two and a half hours by Clarice Van Houten. I mean, wow, what a performance. I as, as I said earlier, I've seen her as Melisandre in Game of Thrones, but she's in a cast that's, that's you know, murderous row of, of great actors. Um, and so she does get forgotten from time to time. There's whole episodes where she doesn't turn up. And she is playing a villain for a, a lot of the show. Whereas this is basically her film. There's other actors in it, but really it is her film. And her performance is absolutely breathtaking. I was, 
I've watched it twice and I didn't quibble. That's yeah. that's how well this film hit me. I was I watched it twice, two hours and forty minutes, two hours and thirty minutes, I should say, and I didn't moan about it. And I was paying attention both times, and I, I think that's a lot to do with her. And so, yeah, I I really enjoyed it, Cam. Oh, that's awesome to hear. Yeah, I was really curious how you would feel about this one because even when I was watching it, I was often, you know, you get taken aback by sometimes what Verhoeven does. And that's always been kind of a bit of his modus operandi is to kind of provoke the audience to get a response out of them. And so you never quite know what the response could be. Like, I don't think there's any issue if someone came on the show and was like, I found this movie uncomfortable and I did not enjoy watching it because of what Verhoeven was doing. I think valid. And I think he would actually be interested in hearing that as well. Be like, oh, that's really interesting. Why did you feel that way? What what was it about these scenes that did that to you? But you never know with Verhoeven, right? And a lot of people have no time to sit and watch even like some of his American stuff like Robocop or Total Recall where the ultraviolence is so in your face or Basic Instinct where the sexuality is incredibly um, overt. It's interesting because one thing I noted down, it's kind of in my likes, but we're talking about it in this section here. Mm-hmm. The film doesn't really give you time to get annoyed with it. It has that Hollywood thing, which is actually more of a trope nowadays, especially with the Marvel films, where like every five or ten minutes they need to hit you with something. Especially in the first half of this film, you know, there's, you know, she's the the main character, uh, Rachel Stein. Um, within the first five minutes, her house has been blown up, and then another five minutes later, she's being shot at. Another ten minutes later, a whole boat of people are being shot at. It's 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 quite crazy that that manages to keep happening throughout this film which is two and a half hours long and so i don't think you really get time to start to i don't want to say dislike it but start to question why you're watching it i think it's it's entertaining and exciting enough at times to keep those people i think probably myself is in that category uh, enticed and to keep watching but for people who prefer the, the gritty character piece I think that's there too. I think that a lot of that is from Carice. It is just like a star-making performance, and I just wish we'd really got to see more star vehicles built around her in the wake of this movie because it's just unbelievable. And it was really interesting just doing some research into um, you know her opinions on some of the things they shot in this because she has to go through some real brave scenes to pull off. You know, there is a sequence near the end of this movie where her character is being humiliated under this like um vat of human excrement where i was like i don't know how to feel about this scene in 2022 like what is her take on this because it's something i began to consider because like i remember sharon stone coming out and saying she was very uncomfortable with the shot they used in basic instinct the famous interrogation shot she did with verhoeven i didn't know she was uncomfortable with it yeah she has come out since and said she was tricked into it and things like that verhoeven has vocally said that was not the case I don't know. It's very messy, but you don't like to hear that an actor who's presented in that kind of light in a movie is uncomfortable with the scene. And I remember hearing Isabella Rossellini talk about doing Blue Velvet. And she has some scenes in that that are, they ask a lot of an actress on screen. She's laying it all bare on the screen in that film. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of critics, a large number of them came out as sort of the, um, the moral watchdogs on that movie and took David Lynch to task when it came out and said he was doing, you know, despicable things to Isabella Rossellini on screen. And I was watching an interview with her a handful of years ago where she was talking about Blue Velvet, and she said, 
that she really saw herself as the co-director of those scenes with Lynch. And she felt very embarrassed when critics came out and said that she was humiliating herself and that she had failed in her intention of getting across what she wanted to in those scenes, which was being laid bare and being very vulnerable and terrified. And she felt like she was being denied agency in making her own creative decisions for what happened in the movie. And so it's something I like to take into account when I'm watching some very uncomfortable scenes like in this movie was I wanted to go and see what Carice Van Houten had to say about them. And she said that like they were very difficult, but like her and Verhoeven were so on the same page that even when she was doing a scene like that, she said, you know, it was brutal to do. She was walking away crying at the end of shooting it. And apparently it was supposed to be like a one take thing and it just did not work. So they had to do it like multiple times over a couple hours. And Verhoeven had said, you know, like, are you okay? And she said, I want you mud wrestling in this with me by the end of this. And, you know, she said when they finished, she was walking away in tears. And he said, where are you going? And he was in the mud, ready to start wrestling, you know, like rolling around in the mud with her. So you can see that, like, there was a trust relationship there. So, like, as much, as difficult as it can be to watch these scenes now, you get the real sense that there was a trust between these two and that it wasn't done in a way that could be exploitive, mm. I think now. And that's something I like to take into account when I'm watching this kind of material, because obviously Carice Van Houten is so unbelievable in these scenes, but you start to go like, oh, oh, like this depiction is kind of rubbing me kind of in a very, very uncomfortable way. And and I think he is definitely trying to make you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's, there's a couple of bits of like quite gratuitous violence later on as well that took me by surprise, which probably now I know who directed this film shouldn't have taken me by surprise. But that's that's me being the novice when it comes to cinema, just showing. But you know, back to Carice and, and, and speaking of Game of Thrones. Now, you've never seen Game of Thrones, I think. Is that right? Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. She uses nudity in that show quite often. But it's quite gratuitous and a, and not necessary for the character a lot of the time. You know, she, she is a sort of an enchantress. She is seducing people. So sex is an important part of her character. But there's moments where you think she didn't need to do that. And, and this is why I found this film very interesting, because she uses nudity again in this film. Oh, I, and her and, by the sounds of Verhoeven, work together to do that. But I think this is far more... It actually goes back to something I think you've said before. Well, like, firstly, there's nudity from both men and women in this film. So I think everything's fair. Yeah. There's there's a, a full-on penis in this film. Yeah. Um, But things like that are fine if they enhance and they add value. This does. Both Both the penis, for instance, I think it adds value to that scene because it adds a sense of... Uh, sort of disgust and uh, tension to that scene where they're in the bathroom together. But just like when she's... Like towards the end where you mentioned the scene with the the big bucket of of feces, the whole crowd's being stripped down because they are former Nazis and they're being shouted at by the the rescued, saved Dutch people because they're they're trying to have a catharsis for the thing they've gone through. And, you know, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's all very uncomfortable. And that's what it's meant to make you feel. And I think if you hadn't have used a nudity, I think maybe you wouldn't have got out across as much. I think it actually helps, and that's what I'm trying to say. Well, it underlines the vulnerability mm. that these characters are being just, you know, not only physically, but emotionally stripped down by this dehumanizing behavior. And that was something like Verhoeven talked about with this movie was that 
obviously its depiction of Nazis is something that might rub some people the wrong way in that, you know, there is a sympathetic one in this film, but he was also quite disgusted with the behavior of a lot of the people of the Netherlands and how they treated people who were in many cases just trying to survive a Nazi occupation and the way that, you know, these prisons are treating people and what have you. And he wanted to get that across on film and essentially underline that in war, a lot of maybe decent people behave in disgusting ways and people who would be portrayed as the heroes of a different movie. Well, like anything in real life, and I think this film is trying to capture reality quite painfully at times, is everything's grey. There really isn't any black and white in real life. And, you know, I don't want to say there were good Nazis. I'm not sure that argument can really ever be made. But No, no. Yeah, I want to say that's not what I'm implying yeah. when I, I'm referring more towards a different movie would make the Dutch resistance, just the heroes. It's them taking down the Nazis through the movie, whereas here they want to look at it through that more morally gray way where mm -hmm. there's fractures, there's issues within the resistance, there's people who aren't necessarily the best of people working there, and I think that's what makes the movie so interesting. You're speaking of Sebastian Koch, who plays uh, Ludwig Munst, who is the head of the Gestapo in that section of the Netherlands. And he falls in love with Van Houten's character. And, you know, there's... It actually reminded me a lot of... Uh, not not particularly, but just the concept of having a, a morally grey Nazi of The Eagle Has Landed with Michael Caine, which we covered ages ago. Oh, that's interesting because I thought of a different movie. Oh, go on. So The Eagle Has Landed. Interesting. I was thinking this movie reminded me a lot of Notorious where that one had the Claude Rains character was portrayed in an often sympathetic light. Oh, I hadn't, yeah, okay. So we, we, we found two there. That's interesting. I suppose mine was more in the uniform. So it was the visual for me that popped into my head. But I, I like yours too. That makes sense. But both of those films played with the gray area of that side of the war. And I think it's to this film's credit that they do it here so successfully because by the end, when uh, Munst meets his fate by a firing squad, you feel sympathy for the man. But, you know, just previous to meeting Van Houten, he was putting people to death. Well, that's the thing about Moons that I think is so interesting in this movie is that he's sort of portrayed as, I guess, <laughs> the more decent um, option against Franken, uh, played by Waldemar Kobus, who is the more loathsome um, Nazi character in the movie, kind of the, I guess, the villain of the movie, if you have one. Um, and... Uh, I'd say that was Ackerman. You think Ackerman? Okay, yeah, fair enough. Sure, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, like Moons is the one who is keeping people alive, who he has in in captivity. But this guy is the head of the Gestapo. Uh, don't tell me that this guy's not doing horrific things. Like I'm, I'm sure he did a few things to get to this job. And, and you know, he highlights he has been part of the invasion force of France and Poland uh -huh. during World War Two. And both of those campaigns were full of bloodshed. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that they make the connection between him and um, Rachel um, through the fact they both lost families. His family was bombed in Germany. And, you know, she loses hers at the start of the movie in a um, boat uh, incident where they are trying to escape and a uh, German boat intercepts them and kills them all. Um but it's more of a human connection here. But it is interesting, like, Muntz, so much of what he's actually done is left kind of to our imagination. But you just have to know a guy in this position. 
at the moment we find him in this movie, he's adopting a more pragmatic approach. He even says, the war is lost. I'm just kind of riding this out. You know, cut to like 1942. This guy had a very different attitude. And, and if, you, if you take that uh, thought process further, by him saying, oh, the war's ending now, you know, the, the Soviets will be here soon to take over, um, that just means he's just turning with the wind. Mm-hmm. He's not actually a good guy. He's just trying to save his ass. And that actually makes him a, more of a sicker human being, really, because he's manipulating people around him to try and save his life. But he is still played as one of the heroes of the film, and I think it still works. I think that's probably a lot to do with the performances and the script. But I think let's dive into some of the things we liked about the film. Obviously, we've mentioned the the two leads, but other things you'd want to call out. What what have you got, Cam? Well, let's talk about Verhoeven's ability to construct a suspenseful set piece. There are several throughout this movie. I mean, this movie is often driven by set pieces. I mentioned the attack on the boat early in the film. A sequence like that is just gripping. Like you are just on the edge of your seat. But there's so many. There's a sequence where the Dutch resistance goes to um, kidnap a German officer through <laughs> using chloroform. <laughs> and it all goes wrong. And the way that this um, seemingly very simple um, capture and, you know, grab goes completely chaotic into like a shootout in the streets is just like spellbinding filmmaking and i mean the movie's full of sequences like that and that and that's what i was sort of referring to earlier where like the film doesn't really give you time to settle in it really is keeping you on the edge of your seat but yeah that i think some of that stuff's quite interesting i i liked and this is just a little bit that the fact that chloroform didn't work instantaneously like it seems to do in cinema whereas in reality you need to do it for like a minute and a half not that i know that and also, this was expired chloroform. It's probably like an hour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's just he's just smothering the guy, basically. So that's definitely why it didn't work. But that you know, you think of like how how tense that scene is, and then you're bouncing into another set piece five ten minutes later. The the one for me I always find quite interesting when I went back for my second viewing, I sort of watched it again. Is the uh, part where they've they've liberated. The Netherlands. Our two leads, Rachel Stein and Ludwig Munst, are trying to first locate a sort of a, a, a lawyer who has basically been selling off the people and getting them killed, and that's what the Black Book is about, the title of the film. Um, but then they get they're like trying to basically those two get killed, and they're trying to capture the guy who shot them, and they're running through the streets of the celebration parade. It's like it's, it's V Day, it's Victory Day. And they're running through the streets and they get tackled eventually and it leads to sort of one of the, one of the climaxes of the film. Um, but that that's so tense because there's, there's just that danger around and you know that he could be seen at any second and eventually he is seen and brought down. And I just think it's, it's so successful at doing these things. The um, chases through crowds is just so well handled. We've, ha- we've talked about movies where, <laughs> you know, it's far simpler set pieces and they just can't capture the geography mm-hmm. of you know, what's going on, where the participants are in relation to one another. And it's the sort of thing that Verhoeven makes look so easy throughout this movie. And there's a couple scenes in huge crowds that are just so effective. And I know that was one of the images that really inspired him with this whole project was the idea of the ceasefire and and the liberation and people not being happy, like having a character who's not happy because of the liberation. And that was kind of one of the central images. And you get that here. And 
It's someone who clearly has a concept they've been kind of stewing over in their mind for a long time and knows how to execute it to the like best potential, um, you know, on-screen effect. So just throughout, even just like there was a, there's a sequence in this movie where the resistance goes to free some, um, you know, a trio of prisoners from the German prison and it turns into a, um, into a trap. And that whole shootout sequence is just unbelievable. And there is no one who knows how to stage a um, gunshot impact quite like Verhoeven. Yeah, I mean, I I had a couple of issues with that scene personally, just because I wasn't really understanding who's responsible for it failing. Um, but that was probably my lack of understanding of the villain's plot. So, well, let's take that little journey here, because we find out in the ending of the movie that the Doctor character who's with the Resistance had a deal with Franken. There's also the lawyer um, who had been essentially setting up wealthy Jewish people to be killed and then having the money sent to Franklin. So I would say it's one of the two of them, right? Yeah, logically it would be one of the two of them. But And, and I suppose this is, leads back to the moral ambiguity you were talking about earlier and everything. But I was just very confused the first time I watched it. And I, I, I do have to think it's probably just me being me and not paying as much attention as I should. Maybe the signs were there. But when I watched it the second time, the signs weren't really there at all. So you're more just kind of thinking, or well, who 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 betrayed them? But I have no idea. Usually a film would give you some sort of breadcrumb. Even I say something like Funeral in Berlin is one I always go back to. When you watch that a second time, there are breadcrumbs. You can pick it up. But this this does not signal anything you you have no idea dr ackerman is a villain until the last 10 minutes i think that's i mean it's maybe a little bit of a fault i have i come down in the same way that you do where i'm like okay it gets rather convoluted to keep track of and i think in one way that is a screenwriting issue where it's just not being communicated strongly enough to the audience but then i'm also like in a way its weakness is underlining the theme of the movie which is this sort of gray territory uncertain loyalties just the messiness of war and how people are just it's not a black and white portrait so it kind of makes this whole who's responsible for what kind of work into the theme of the movie and that's maybe more of an excuse than um an intention sure and i think one of the ones i want to talk about when it comes to likes and yeah we, we've spoken about carice but the creation of a female lead protagonist. And it's interesting because I, I didn't do any research on the director, but you you saying he created Basic Instinct. Yeah. Well, it was written by um, Joel Esterhaus, but, um, but he, he directed, directed it. He framed it. Yeah. He, he brought it from script to screen. Right. And I think this is one of the film's successes. I know we've said her performance is fantastic, but crafting a female lead especially in a spy film seems to be something that films can't seem to do i look back at 355 recently you know ava something like that where they've just it's just whiffed it constantly like we've had some good ones we had hannah a while back you know um Mata Hari. yeah in 1933 yeah uh, quite some time ago so I, and also um uh, notorious as well with Ingrid Bergman but sure. you're right like there's the fact that I'm now searching for the 30s and 40s films maybe just only uh you know cements your point yeah and I I just I just think it's a it's a like I have it's not something we really need to dig into so much but just 
I'm glad that there's another film we can add to our arsenal that has a solid female lead that isn't just talking about men. I'm sure it passes the Bechdel test. It's such a stunning performance. And it it takes me back to how I felt about Saoirse Ronan in Hannah. And I was just blown away by that too. That was my first Saoirse Ronan film, I think. Or maybe I'd seen one. But either way, I'm just saying it was nice to have a strong female lead. And it was an interesting companion piece in some ways to me with Zero Dark Thirty, which we talked about relatively recently. They are very different characters, um, but to have you know the character played by Chris Van Houten here, uh, Rachel, who is more of a character in that Matahari kind of mold, I don't know. I mean, I thought Ingrid Bergman did that very well in Notorious, but this movie has... Overall seriousness that I think echoes a little more of what Zero Dark Thirty was in terms of a movie to talk about on this podcast. It's hard to be all yucks and laughs when it's tackling such serious material, and that was the case with Zero Dark Thirty as well. Um, but there's a way that those two performances, um, you know, um, Jessica Chastain in Zero Dark and Carice Van Houten in this movie, they are like the towering figures over top of those movies. Like when I look at Bergman in Notorious. It's kind of a three-hander in that film mm-hmm. with your three leads. Whereas Chastain and Van Houten, the movie is them. And I think that this is a movie that is very smartly written around its lead. And you could say the same about Hannah. I mean, Saoirse Ronan is fantastic in it, but it also has some great performances from Eric Banya, from... Blanchett, man. Blanchett the Wolf. Yeah, Blanchett. And, you know, Tom Hollander has a strange little turn in there too that I think is quite interesting and yeah it, 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 this one is definitely Carice Van Houten's film and if she was ever going to use uh, like a hey someone ask her what's my acting like just show her the show them this film I think this is a pretty good show reel for any actor and we've talked about her doing difficult scenes but there's so many just amazing Hollywood moments and this isn't a Hollywood film but like I think of her musical number of Naughty Lola at the German ball, like the way she performs that it's so cinematic. It feels almost like an old school musical and the way they take these kind of big showpiece moments. And then we'll find a very like tough character drama moment in them. Like with that sequence, it's her looking at someone and being sick shortly after when she recognizes a Nazi who was involved with the murder of her parents. And they will give you these kind of showpiece moments with her constantly. Some of them are kind of funny, you have a sequence where she is dyeing um, her pubic hair to, you know, a blonde color to try to pass as a German woman going undercover. And they have fun with that. Like, she's kind of making jokes about it. And, uh, you know, the doctor is there while she's doing it. And there's kind of a flirtation going on. So it's giving her these kind of, like, playful moments mixed in with a lot of heavy material. I mean, I don't need to dye my pubes anymore. Uh, since since we started working with Manscaped, they are in tip-top shape. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Have I come, become that predictable after 80-odd films? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Manscaped, it spoke to us. <laughs> it didn't speak to anyone. That was more the problem, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah, I, well, I mean, I, I did kind of bump on the... Uh, dying of the pubes scene which I think is how people refer to it mm-hmm. um, when the doctor kind of grabs her very viciously which I didn't quite get I, I mean there was a there seemed to be a sexual flirtation going on there uh, I didn't quite understand that but more to the point 
apart from these sort of dire scenes that she's acting through, these harrowing moments she's dealing with, there are genuine moments of joy in this film that she brings to life. There's and like Hollywood moments, you said. Like there's a scene of her right at the start of the film, just just listening to English music by the side of a river, just just laying there. And I mean, what a look, what a what a stunner, and you know the way it's framed. She looks like a Hollywood starlet. I would, I would put her on any poster. She should lead any film. I really wish we have had more Carice Van Houten. And you completely buy that this woman would be able to charm her way through this assignment. And that's something that, like, I think a lot of movies, if they handled this material, and they would do it differently. I think very few would do it the way Verhoeven does it, but they would make the character more visibly tormented in scenes, whereas Chris Van Houten is often charming her way through moment after moment with these characters, and that's something that really works for the movie. And also, you know, she if we're talking about the spy stuff for a second, because this is what we do here. She's a terrific spy. Mm-hmm. You think about that scene in the train where the, you know, the SS are on board trying to check IDs, and they're smuggling weapons in, in suitcases. And, you know, some films would play it as, you know, the, the, the Hans Ackerman, Dr. Ackerman character who's with her on the train would make a big scene about it and she would skate on by and it would be fine. But no, she takes the lead and she gets him, she she slaps him in the face and then you know, takes the suitcases and takes control of the moment and then finds Ludwig Munst in the carriage further down and manipulates him to protect her from the search. And that is all of her just seat-of-her-pants spy work. That's that's some proper Bond stuff she does there. And you get the real sense of a survival instinct of not just her, but also her friend Ronnie, played by Helena Rain. Erasian, maybe, perhaps? But um, And I know the two actresses were friends and actually went to the audition, you know, essentially together and were both hired. Um, but you get the real sense of women having to survive in these circumstances. And, you know, for Rachel, it's because she's Jewish and having to hide being Jewish and also going undercover in, you know, German headquarters as a Dutch resistance fighter. But with Ronnie, she may not have the same story, but you get a real sense of these women having to be survivors and use their charms just to get through the war. That's it. Just to try to make it through alive and intact. And you get by the end, you know, they're both married and trying to live their best lives and you just get the sense of like what they had to do just to make it through whatever it takes Mm -hmm. and often being dehumanized yeah yeah well i i kind of want to pivot us over into some things that we disliked and i I have a couple okay why don't you start um actually one leads off beautifully of what you were just talking about this film is bookended by um well actually the, the 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 main point of the film is a flashback the bookends of the film are actually in the future sometime in the 50s and she's living in israel and she's a teacher and she has a husband and kids she's 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 made it which then adds to the problem you know she survives the war because she's alive in the future right so there's kind of a little bit of tension taken away from that but also it doesn't do a very good job particularly apart from like a flash on the screen of saying that it's gone back in time um and so like the first time i watched it i was very confused as to how she went from that look to this look and being in that boat all of a sudden i didn't really understand that jump right and then watching it the second time i kind of realized that hey doesn't this take away a lot of the power of it being her trying to survive the war when we know she survives 
Yeah, I I know exactly what you mean. It's something with those sorts of framing devices that often you like to get rid of them nowadays. Like people tend to veer away from these sorts of bookends because they do kind of remove that sort of tension. I think for me, the reason that it doesn't bump me too much is because just the inherent tension of what she's involved in and more the question of because there's so many characters that she's working with in the resistance and everything, there's so much internal um, drama going on that I'm more interested to see what the outcome is going to be and how this situation is going to resolve itself by the end. Sure. I mean, I, I'm not complaining about it. it it's it's a minor nitpick, if anything. It, and it, I imagine most people wouldn't even pick up on that problem. It's just something on the second watch, and I watched it you know, once a day for the last two days. In close proximity, you analyze things differently if you watch it a second time. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Agents, pardon the interruption, but we have some top secret intel. That's right. Independent podcasting is not cheap. Equipment, hosting, research. We don't have Townsend Agency resources. And also, we don't want to run ads on the show. No one wants to hear that shit, tucky mushrooms. And this is a big reason we created the Spy Hearts Patreon. So we're here asking for your help. Please consider joining the Patreon. You'll not only be gaining access to our exclusive lineup of reviews and film commentaries, but also helping support the show. We're currently saving to upgrade our sound equipment to bring your listening experience up to Q-Branch standards. With a wide range of flexible options and an ever-growing catalogue to dive into, become a true spy hard today and enter the Xander Zone at patreon.com slash spyhards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, or you can find a link in the show notes below. Now, Cam, on with the spy jinx. Um, but what about you, Cam? Anything you disliked? Well, I want to circle back on a moment you talked about with the doctor, where you have the sort of beginnings of a, I guess, sex scene with Rachel during the dying sequence. And you're right. Like, the way it comes across, it's weird, right? Like, there's something mm -hmm. about it that seems kind of aggressive and strange. Well, he's physically aggressive, and he, like, throws her around almost, and it... From from what is a burgeoning flirty romance to five seconds later he's throwing her around the room, I'm not sure that works. And is that a precursor to essentially the twist of the movie that we're supposed to read this as being kind of strange, and then we have the payoff of him being evil? I know what you mean though. Like in that moment, it is kind of uncomfortable, and I think it is jarring because we then spend what like an hour and a half with that character as a member of the resistance that we are supposed to be. Um, somewhat invested in. But I do wonder if that is sort of a breadcrumb for his heel turn by the end. I can, I, I'd never looked at it that way, actually. You, you've enlightened me a little bit there. I hadn't considered that. Uh, first time for everything, Cam. But yeah, I, I guess it, it just... This is all like afterwards thinking. It's uh, What's that old uh, Hitchcock phrase? It's... Um, it's like the fr like that, the fridge thinking where you, you get after the film, you go to the fridge and you're like, hey, that didn't make sense. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, icebox. Icebox thinking. Ice icebox problem. That was what you called it. Um, and But it's it's minor nitpicks again. Uh, but yeah, I, I it did bump me. I imagine people watching it the first time will be like, hmm, I wonder if this leads somewhere. It never really does. And I would then question why it's there. I wonder if it's also because the Sebastian Koch character, Muntz, we, going in, are very well trained with the tropes of Hollywood movies, right? Clearly, 
he is going to be the villain and um you know uh, ackerman is going to be the hero figure the cary grant essentially of notorious who's sending her in but he's the one that loves her and when you have that sort of beginning of a sex scene there you're like Ugh, like that was kind of weird and it kind of throws you off in a way in going back to the gray territory it's like is this guy trustworthy like he seems kind of sketchy and but then also you know just to maybe be in the film's defense all of a sudden yeah maybe it's to draw a distinction between dr ackerman and munst because when they have their sex scene a couple of scenes later munst and uh rachel stein he's nothing but gentle yeah it's very like sensual and he's a he's a nazi leader yeah and He's onto her being Jewish very quickly, which is a moment of like your stomach just sinks when he discovers it. But you see that he seems to be okay with this. And it becomes more of this like intimate sort of romance and connection between the two, which um, one thing that Ackerman says that makes me think that it's very intentional, that scene, which is I at least get to have you first. Oh, I think I just figured it out. Hmm. So in that scene, the pube dying scene that we're referring to, where the sexual contact takes place and it's very aggressive, um, Rachel Stein finds out that Ackerman is a doctor. Yeah. And he says, don't tell anyone. That's because he, we find out later in the film, right at the end, that he was arrested and, that, and that's where his arrest record is, that he's a doctor. Boom. Yeah. Okay. I think we've sussed that out. It actually was intentional and it kind of makes sense. But I kind of like that Verhoeven challenges us. Because yeah. a scene like that, you would not get in a Hollywood movie. They'd be like, the audience is going to be put off by this character, and they aren't being given gratification mere moments later as to why they were right to not like this scene. Mm. It's not spelled out for people. Well, another problem I had, uh, and we've touched on it, is you call it the, the Return of the King issue. Yeah. But it feels like this film is meant to end three or four times. And I think the runtime is maybe a little bit excessive. Personally, I don't like films that really go past the two-hour mark. I think it has to really uh, work to deserve it. And I think there's there's times where this film could have just ended. For instance, the, the last couple of scenes in, involve... I can't remember half the character's name, so I won't get into it. But one of the leaders of the Resistance digging up their dead son, who was killed by the Nazis... And Rachel Stein goes to him and reveals Ackerman's big plan. And then they capture Ackerman and suffocate him in a coffin. And this takes about 10 minutes. Did we need any of that? Okay, I know exactly what you mean. That is a moment, though, where I'm like, this section at the end feels like it's getting a little unwieldy. We're kind of bouncing around. Like, yeah. she goes to meet up with that um, that resistance, the older resistance member. Uh, keeper, I think. Keepers, yeah, Coopers, Cu- yeah, Coopers yeah. or something. Um, she shows up at just like this mass grave where he is finding the remains of his son. And it's like, how did she know to go there? Like mm. stuff like that feels like characters bouncing around to reach a resolution. So I, I know exactly what you mean, but like it has these individual moments. That scene with the coffin and putting the doctor in the coffin, or he's already in there hiding, but her sealing it with the locket that had been around her neck that she'd been carrying the pictures of her family. I'm like, this sequence is so good and so perfect. I understand why Verhoeven was like, we have to have this. This has to be the ending of our movie. 
you've said this phrase before, um, but there must have been smoke coming off the pen when they wrote that scene because it just feels like, oh my God, now it all ties in. We've got it. High fives across the room. Let's go get a beer. We've done it. Because that, it, it pays off the beginning of the film. Yeah. Uh, and I, I mean, I, I, I imagine it's the sort of thing they stumbled upon at the end. It, it does work, but I will still hang my hat on the fact I'm not sure I need any of that as, as closure. Well, you have the doctor um, being exposed as well as that lawyer. And yeah. it's like, I wonder if there would have been a way to maybe combine those two things a little closer. And you have the whole section where he tries, the doctor tries to um, kill uh, Rachel with an insulin overdose. Mm. And I'm like, okay, we're putting her in peril again. I feel like the scene where the doctor rescues her from the uh, the prison. Um, I don't know that this character needs to suffer anymore. I don't know that I needed that insulin scene. Well, I usually would ask you what your next one is, but you actually stumbled upon my last one with that sentence. So if you don't mind, we'll just yeah. jump into that. Yeah. I felt by the point she was having a vat of excrement dumped on her. Now, I know what that's for. That's to put your character through strife and trouble for them to grow blah 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 and the lowest point too like this is the lowest point of her life yeah yeah she's she is just given up she's lost all hope by this point like she she doesn't even know her loved one's been killed but she is lost pretty much all hope i understand that i understand why writers write this sort of thing but at some point it just feels a bit gratuitous and i was sitting there going like do i need to see this this is just making me feel uncomfortable, which maybe that's what Verhoeven's doing. He's just trying to challenge his viewer. But I, I sometimes think like there's a, there must come a point when you're making films where you go, is this just me? I'm going to use a horrible term. Is this just me masturbating in a script and on screen and just, you know, doing it because I can, because I'm a director? Or is the audience gaining anything from this? And I just felt like, Putting her through that, and then just two minutes later, she's being killed by insulin overdose because she's diabetic. I just wondered, like, did we need to keep putting her through strife? She's had so much already. What are we getting? Like, there's a. I'm sure that visual was used of her with the poo in the bucket. I'm sure that was a scene that was maybe played for festivals or whatever. Brilliantly acted scene from Carice because she's a fantastic actor. And it's visceral. It's real yeah. visceral. Yeah. And, and all the stuff going on around it, the, the whole crowd have been stripped and they're being like shouted at and it's just very degrading and dehumanizing. I just wondered if I needed it. And it, it, it I, I was made to feel uncomfortable maybe too many times personally, but maybe that's just my threshold had been passed by that point. And it's the sort of scene too, like I try when I'm watching movies like this to not just view it as a North American because every place has different bars that they accept in their entertainment. You know, for example, um, for us, you know, Scott, you and I, growing up, the Ninja Turtles were a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. And I know that in the UK, they wouldn't show the nunchucks that Michelangelo had, right? Mm-hmm. And didn't they also call them Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles? Heroes in a Half Show. Yeah. Turtle power. Whereas here, yes, they 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 did rename. I think that was only for the the cartoon on TV. I don't think it was for comics. Okay, cool. But it is a cultural sensitivity point. And over here, the nunchucks were no big deal. Ninja was no big deal. And so it's like, uh, is you know the UK wrong for thinking this? Is the you know North America wrong for thinking this? Like, 
every region has their own comfort levels. And he's making this movie. He's from the Netherlands. And he's making a movie, you know, in Europe. In his sort of world of filmmaking there, is this not too far? In North America, definitely. No filmmaker would have shot that in North American production and shown it. But when it comes to a European film, are we gauging it by the standards of where we live and what's deemed acceptable by our filmmaking industry. That's where it gets to be a very, um, I think, difficult conversation with yourself. And I can see his argument because, and I get that I, uh, you know, a Hollywood director wouldn't wouldn't do this, but I mean, the World War Two wasn't comfortable for anyone. So why should we sit in comfort whilst we're watching a film about the harrowing things that happened? that's trying to be somewhat realistic to people in the war. We should be being pushed, and I completely get that. I think probably where I'm bumping is just from my lack of experience when it comes to cinema, and so this is me being pushed to my edge and perhaps slightly beyond, but this also helps me grow to to be better at watching films, which is not something I necessarily thought I had to grow with, but I have been. And, I mean, I think... When it comes to what he wanted to depict here, which was this um, torture of these people in these prisons, it's something that had never really been showcased, at least in a movie that I've come across. And I watch a lot of World War II films. I've seen, you know, you'll get the odd scene of, say, a woman having her hair shaved after liberation or something. I've seen that in several things. Band of Brothers did that. Mm -hmm. But something like this I'd never seen before. And I think it's very clear that Verhoeven wanted to portray the true horror of it and that you know, the fact that people in the Netherlands were doing this, he is disgusted by and wants to portray it as being irredeemable. Like, this was not a case of, they deserve that revenge on these people. He sees it as disgusting and wants to portray it as so. And uh, again, like, he's a very provocative director and he's not afraid to put things out there that are going to make you cringe or just avert your gaze. And uh, yeah. Well, and you also mentioned the, the coffin. Mm-hmm. which is the last big death of the film which is you know dr ackerman's trying to sneak out of the country in a coffin which is what a, an actual ploy he was using on her to smuggle her in earlier on in the film now some might say that was another step too far very challenging but you know you look at uh, rachel stein and uh, gervin cooper's the person we were talking about earlier the father of the the son who had been murdered by the nazis and they seal him in the coffin and then they just go and sit outside the car and listen to his final gasps for air as he slowly dies in the coffin. And they are uncomfortable with their choices. And you can tell that they are, it's not sitting well with them either. They're not standing there top gun high-fiving each other at what they've done. They are. They even say we should probably open the casket. But they know they want justice to be served so they don't do it. I I I just find this very fascinating to talk about with you. I just think this is a different film for me, and I and I'm 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 glad I didn't just hate it. Right, and I think you just underlined something that I hadn't really thought about, which is that that scene with the coffin. They're sitting there, and you can tell that the weight of that moment is hanging over them, and all of the things they've gone through. But and that's sort of something I think that maybe why we kind of a scene like with you know in the prison there we definitely get uncomfortable but it's like i don't know that the movie ever shies away that the character is carrying this experience with her right to the bitter end of this movie even in the 1950s scenes these sorts of 
incidents are very much hanging over like the trauma does not go away the grief does not go away she's going to carry this for the rest of her life absolutely and i think in a different movie they would be terrified of having a character who's going to be carrying this burden there'd be a happy ending there would be you know moments of levity in the wake of this and it doesn't really give you that right at the beginning of the film carice bumps into um helena rain who who played bronny in the future in, in which she's working in Israel in the school and they have a little reunion and then she walks off and cries because those memories have come flooding back to her which then leads to the flashback which is our main narrative for the film so yeah I don't think it shies away from it at all and I don't think we've shied away from talking about it which I, I quite like and I think before uh, we heading over to the knock list question do you have any sort of final notes for us Cam? Um, the final shot of the movie I think is very interesting where um they are in Israel, and at the end, it's her reuniting on the beach with her husband and, you know, children, mm-hmm. going into an enclosement of, um, you know, a structure that has been funded by some of the money that she had gotten from Jewish people that had been killed. And we see that there is an attack going on or a war going on in Israel. And the idea of, like, history repeating itself again, and that this character is going to exist in horrible circumstances throughout much of her life yeah i think that is quite an interesting way to leave the film it's not like it's a happy ending but also maybe it is maybe it's just the best that she can get in a sense and she's content in that i mean she doesn't seem to be particularly frightened by that final scene where people are running up to go guard post towers and stuff she's just sort of moving on because i think she's dealt with worse and so she's just moving on with her life and I think Verhoeven said something along the lines of like, when you live with war, it becomes normalized. Yeah. And for her, that's probably the case. And so it's about her having comfort with her family and her life is continuing onwards, regardless of what's going on around her. And that's probably the case for the Ronnie character as well, who we see, you know, who's paired off with Franken, who's a real loathsome character through the movie. And we see that at the end, she's, you know, married to a Canadian soldier but Ronnie is always going to remember the experiences she had. Yeah. I, I did uh, have a couple of notes for you. Okay, go. So at one point, just watching the translation, I think they're talking about the uh, inspector who authorized the shooting of Muntz, and they refer to him as some Canadian asshole. <laughs> my nickname. <laughs> yeah, that's my new name for you, asshole. So uh, we can we can explicit this episode now. I've said the word. Thank you. And the only other thing I had, I found this in the IMDb trivia, and I just thought it was so weird that someone thought to write this up. I thought I would mention it. They're referring to the coffin at the end where the guy is trapped in. And allegedly in the film, it takes about five minutes for him to die, according to screen time, and they've extrapolated it. And then they go on to say, in actuality, it takes five and a half hours for an adult in an adult-sized coffin to suffocate. Okay. Well, I mean, I think for the uh, expediency of the movie, it's probably better not to spend <laughs> that extra amount of time. But yeah, I did have that thought. I was like, I don't think you'd die that quickly in a coffin. I, I didn't think about it, and nor do I ever want to think about it, because that is one of my two nightmares. I mean, I'm not like a hugely claustrophobic person, but when I see sequences of like someone being buried alive like that, yeah. or... Yeah. Also, something like, I don't know if you, you're not a big horror guy, but like there's a movie called The Descent, which is about people who go spelunking and come across monsters. And it's a lot of people like trapped in like, 
like really tight caverns climbing and things like that underground and it's like oh that sort of thing really torments me i i I don't like being buried alive and the other one i have a problem with i have a lot of nightmares about is drowning Mm, i'm not a very good swimmer so that that kind of like plays into that for me i i and i don't like open water particularly which is funny because i live on a very tiny island oh okay yeah yeah i mean i'm not a big ocean guy myself so i can kind of relate there Um, strange with your shark stuff Oh, I love sharks, and I would love to go in a shark cage or something and see them. But uh, you haven't done that in terms yet. of I haven't. You no, know, it's, it's expensive, wow. and I, I want to see a great white. That's the thing, and I, I have to travel to go do that. Um, they're not local; <laughs> they aren't coming to me, unfortunately. <laughs> um, a couple other points that I had: um, there is a motif, visual a motif going on that Verhoeven has in this movie. That's um, I think kind of playful and amusing which is his um penises versus guns where you have a scene between um uh rachel and uh ackerman on the train where she you know kind of does the is that a gun are you happy to see me kind of a variation on that sort of joke and he's got the gun in his pocket but later on when she goes um into uh bedroom and she's undressing and what looks like an erection starts rising and it's revealed to be a gun it's interesting that these two kind of competing, I guess, romantic figures in the movie both have that motif going for them. You could tell they spent 25 years writing this, can't you? Yeah. I mean, they both these men... everything out. Yeah, and both of these men could get her killed easily. So it's a uh, kind of a yeah. playful visual metaphor, but it's it's an effective one. It definitely, you know, leaps out at you when you're watching the movie. Leaps out. out. Leaps yeah. out. Perfect yeah. word. Perfect, yeah. uh, perfect term Brilliant. there. Any other notes? <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, what did you think of the Resistance characters? Because there's a bunch of them. We haven't really talked about them. Did any jump out for you uh, or leap out? Um, Ugh. I thought the- uh, Theo, or Theo, the um, religious one, was uh, notably really whiny. longing that pun out. <laughs> I really am. <laughs> yeah, the only chap that jumped out to me was Theo, just because he's a bit different to everyone else. There's a lot of, like, faceless, nameless, faceless people that just get killed. But yeah. Theo is the one who seems to have an actual... I think he's like a devout Christian. I kind of get that feeling from him. And that he is... Uh, he doesn't want to kill. And he inevitably has to kill someone. And that hurts him deep inside. And so you get a moment of him kind of... Before he shoots the guy, he stops because he doesn't think he should. Um, and then later on, he's like cursing himself for, for killing the guy. It's a little bit of the film. But it just adds a little bit of humanity to it. No one wants to do that. Apart from psychopaths. Right. And they get some comedy out of him as well, where he's not allowed to kill someone until they um, blasphemy. Like, moments like that. It's not a hilarious movie, (laughs) but little bits of comedy where they can find them are effective. There's a few more moments of lightness in the film if you look for them. But yeah, it's it's a serious film. Um, And I, I think it might be one of our most serious films we've ever tackled, apart from maybe Zero Dark Thirty so far. Yeah, Zero Dark Thirty is the one that immediately jumps to mind. I'm trying to think if there was something in our first, you know, half year or something that we tackled that fell into that category, but nothing that's jumping to my mind at the moment. Um, the things like uh, Where Eagles Dare and Eagle Has Landed, which are both Nazi films, uh, are more playful. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, okay. and a lot easier to talk about in terms of their depiction of Nazis than this movie is. This movie, it's uncomfortable. Because they're black and white. Yeah. Yeah, this is not. Okay, well, I think let's get down to it. 
black book, is it the proverbial bucket full of poo or is it making the knock list? Cam, what do you think? I think I'm a yes on this one. As much as like we both agree that it has, you know, the old Return of the King ending problem, there's something about this movie that just feels so unique and so provocative and challenging. It's very much a spy movie for adults. Uh, it's not one I'd be recommending to kids. <laughs> um, they can have spy kids. That's on the knock list. It's approved. Sure. But I think I like having ones on here that challenge people. I think Zero Dark Thirty did that. Zero Dark Thirty is very uncomfortable for people to watch as well in terms of its torture scenes. And we had a long conversation about how those really do weigh heavy on you watching the movie. And I think some of the material in Black Book will weigh heavy on people as well. But as, you know, a female-driven spy film led by a character who's consistently compelling and fascinating and, you know, multidimensional and just has so much going on and just a star-making performance and working with Verhoeven, who's a consistently fascinating filmmaker, I think I got to say yes on this one. That's very interesting. I hadn't considered this outcome. Hmm. I was going to go with no. Okay. Um, I've done nothing for the last hour and a half but say how good this film is, really. Um, I don't like the endings. I have some nitpicks about a few things. And I think the reason I come down on no, and I, I don't want to say it's like a, a, a yeah, rubber stamp no. It's almost like a light no because... And maybe this is something we can talk about, but I just don't ever want to watch this film again. Yeah. And so a part of me doesn't want to recommend it because it's like, it's a tough sit. And I think a lot of people that go, oh yeah, Goldfinger, great, I could watch that. Spy Kids, cool. Um, I don't know, Hannah, great. And then you say, watch this, and it just it's just a whiplash. But that doesn't mean it's necessarily not on the knock list. I'm just I've got this internal debate in my head, and I I, I even on my my notes I could send you a photo afterwards. Knock list is question mark. Sure, and it's a conversation I think we have to have. I mean, Zero Dark Thirty is not a movie I want to watch necessarily again either, mm-hmm. and it is something that is often brought up when it comes to what is a great film because you know. There's a lot of movies we talk about, James Bond movies, for example. Let's talk about one of the lesser ones, say like Tomorrow Never Dies. Sure. We've seen Tomorrow Never Dies many times. Didn't make the knock list. Is it a great film? Hmm. Well, I've watched it like 20 times. It must be, right? I don't know. And then, you know, something like Schindler's List, which is an unbelievable, you know, masterwork. Do I want to watch it a lot? No. I've watched it twice. I'm good for probably the next 15 years. And yet, that's one of the best films of all time. It's a pretty amazing film, yeah. And so, I think it comes down entirely to the individual. But I do regard this one as being, in my mind, closer to a Zero Dark Thirty than an Ipcris File or a Where Eagles Dare or something like that. If we look at the original mission statement for the Knocklist, it's the need to see official classics. That tortured acronym, as you like to say. Yeah. Is Black Book need to see? I Okay, this is where I think maybe a difference in sensibilities comes into play. Because for me, I really like very um, unique auteurs. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, for me, the idea of Verhoeven doing a spy film. And I should add, we are going to do Total Recall some point later down the road, which is another Verhoeven film. So 
you know, there's a couple opportunities for him, but um, he has such a distinct sensibility and his approach to this sort of material is so unlike anything else out there. That's kind of why I side strongly with it because I can't get what he does anywhere else. I'm really, because the problem we've got listeners is if we had a guest, they could probably solve this because it would be a three-way vote and then we would just go with the majority. But when we have a me and Cam on different sides of an argument, it's it's one of our jobs to convince the other or it goes down as a no because you can't decide. Yeah. And it has to be a majority. But there's this like sinking feeling that I can't let this not go on. Like, I think it's great. And I think there's really a lot to learn from this. And it's the thing is, it, say say when we're finished doing this podcast, and maybe we publish the knock list with our reasons as why we make a book. I don't want that book just being the Ipcris file and Goldfinger and the flashy Hollywood films that you would expect. And this is what leads me maybe towards the yes route. Maybe I'm talking myself into it better than you have, but I I, I don't want this also to be like, oh, look at me flexing my, you know, look at this fancy film I watched and, you know, I've expanded our horizons, blah, blah, blah. I just think this is a genuinely good film and I think I've learned a lot from it. And I think it would, if you're a fan of spy films, probably push you to like different things and look at things differently. What more could you ask for? What am I doing? Yeah, it's a yes. And also, like, it's very unlikely we'll tackle a World War II espionage film like this ever again. We've got a few of them. We, we've got one coming up not too long down the road. Um, you know, a very, very recent one. But I think it's very unlikely we'll stumble across anything like Black Book again. I will say, though, if you were to say a no, um, I think Paul Verhoeven would love that. He'd be like, oh, they were split? Perfect. My job's done. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, I think I, I have to be more objective than subjective about the knock list. And I think objectively this should be on there. And that's 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 why I'm going to give it the mild yes and therefore let it slip on through. It is one, though, I would say to people listening who are curious. It has the caveat of, like, it's not an easy movie to watch. Yeah. And uh, you should know your own, you know, um, stomach for visceral content and whether it's a movie for you. And, it, you know, I struggled, especially the first time I watched it. And I still have some nitpicks with it. But, yeah, I, I think if you think you can make it through it, um, I think it will enrich your spy viewing. So, as such, it's a yes and a mild yes. Therefore, Black Book is making the knock list and the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. But, Cam, what are we doing next week? Well, Scott... We've tackled Black Book. Next week, we're doing Spy Kids 4, All the Time in the World. <laughs> Speaking that, of whiplash. Is that the biggest whiplash transition we've ever had? It's got to be. It's There's nothing bigger. I don't remember what came after Zero Dark Thirty. I think it was something similar, actually. I think it was a complete change. Okay, I've got the answer. I've got the answer. It was actually right in front of me. Go on. The follow-up to Zero Dark Thirty was Spy Kids 2. <laughs> What are we doing to ourselves? It's like palate cleansers, isn't it, really? It's uh, fluffy nonsense after some serious stuff. Maybe that's what you need, though. That's why you have a sorbet after a heavy meal. You, 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 and, you know, 
sorbets are usually nice and sweet, whereas I'm not too sure that is the case with Spy Kids 4. Well, we'll find out, and that'll actually close off the Spy Kids franchise. So that'll be really interesting to watch that film and then look back at the three previous films as we say goodbye to the Cortez family. Question mark, I suppose, because who knows if they'll ever make a sequel or a you know reboot or something. Yeah, well, there you go. I'm sure a lot of you are celebrating as well. That'll be the last time we're talking about the Spy Kids. Mm, yeah, no kidding. Well, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Spy Kids for all the time in the world and join us next week. Black Book did make the knock list, but if you want to find out a little bit more about the knock list, you can head over to letterbox.com slash spyhards, find out the films that made it, the films that didn't, and the films that got disavowed. And of course, do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, but until next week, listeners, you're cursed, you blasphemer! Do you love spy books, movies, and TV? Then the Spybrary Podcast is for you. Since 2017, host Shane Whaley and Spybrary field agents around the world dispatch reviews and interviews with authors, historians, and fellow spy fans. We discuss everything from John le Carre, Len Dayton, Paul Vidic, Graham Greene, Mick Heron, Charles Cumming, Ben McIntyre, and many more. Spybrary is available on all good podcast apps and at spybrary.com. 